Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Rodrigo Camara Leret. I hope I said it close to right. Did I get it close to right? You said it just fine. Okay, cool. Uh, and I came to you through a podcast guest that was on recently, Alan, now Herrera? I, I've, I don't know if I said that right, too. I think that's correct. Herrera. Herrera. And he has lived among the Kogi and uh, who live in modern-day Colombia. They've, and I'll let you tell a little bit more about them because you've been living among them doing, as I understand, an experiment. So if it's okay with you, I'll read a bit of your bio mm -hmm. for people who don't know you. Sure. And then talk a little bit about the experiment that you're working on. Mm -hmm. So you're born in Spain, raised in Madrid, Cairo, Rio. You have a master's in science and biodiversity from the University of Leiden and a PhD in biology from the University Autonoma de Madrid, a postdoc at Aarhus in Denmark. You really get around and early career research at the Royal Botanical Gardens uh, Kew in the UK. And all right, there's an experiment that you're working on. And I'm going to, here's my understanding, and please let me know if, uh, if I've gotten it right or how to say it better. But that the Kogi have spoken to the world through Alan a lot to say, you guys are messing things up and we can help you do things a bit better. And that they, people are like, okay, Scientists in the West are like, well, maybe, maybe not. Let's 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 see the goods. And I think that you did an experiment with them. And I did see in presentations of Alan that there'd be a territory that was wrecked, mm -hmm. that some once verdant area, and the Kogi suggested how to fix this territory. And the before and after are tremendous. It looks wrecked, and then afterward, it's verdant and lush. Yes. And on the face of it, they're not. Um, Oh, we Western scientists know how to do things better, and they, you know, they they don't really know, but it works, and perhaps we can learn from them. Perhaps over the centuries that they've been developing their arts and crafts, that they actually know what they're doing. So the title, so I have this uh, a press release: Can Indigenous Wisdom Provide a Route of Climate a Route Out of Climate Disaster? A new three-year project backed by UNESCO Bridges tests the water, and I could describe it in the. And I'll put a link to it in the text. But maybe at this point, how did you come to meet Alan? How did you come to work with the Kogi? What, how have things been going? Hmm. Um, well, first, thanks for your invitation to this podcast. And I'm really honored to be here. Um, so the invitation from Alan to join this initiative just came out of the blue, actually. And it was a wonderful moment um, it was through a, a colleague um, who i had met when i was working at the royal botanic gardens q i'm now working at the university of zurich in switzerland and she recommended alan that he speaks to me um, well we we had um, been interacting in q with, with my colleague and um, have discussed a lot about indigenous knowledge because during my phd i was working to document the knowledge of indigenous communities in Northwest South America about how they use palm trees. And for that, I spent about 18 months living with different communities in the region. And, and so when Alan spoke to me about the Kogi, who I knew about, but had never worked with, it was almost like, um, yeah, like a dream come true because the Kogi are one of the most, um, you could say, traditional groups in Colombia who have, retained very strong strong cultural roots 
and very few scientists have worked with them, mainly because they have uh, been very wary of outsiders. And actually, Alan was one of the first to to film with them in the 1990s, and then in uh, in the 2000, I think it was 2012. And so it was also a huge honor that Alan contacted me. Um, so he presented the idea of the Munekan Masha project, which in Kogi means to let it grow. And it's basically a radically new idea where the Kogi are not asking Western scientists to work with them to restore the land and, and learn from us. But they, they they will, of course, because any interaction leads to mutual learning. But what they really want to do is show the world how they restore degraded lands. And on top of this, it's important to note that the Kogi's ancestral territory, which uh, goes from the lowlands in the Sierra Nevada Santa Marta to the highlands, has been very fragmented because during the first Spanish occupation and then the subsequent governments of Colombia, they have been retreating upslope um, and have been losing the lands that they used to occupy. So with the support of NGOs and other institutions, they have been buying these lands in the lowlands and rec reclaiming them and restoring them both biologically and, and culturally. So this new project, which is uh, just starting, um, aims to show the world how the Kogi um, developed this restoration process. And, and yeah, I am very excited to be part of it. Also, I must say I'm not alone in this, but this is a fantastic team. My wife, who's an ecologist and also a, a scientist, She's also involved in, in the research of the project. There's another anthropologist who speaks Kogi and uh, uh, additional anthropologists. So the project will not only be uh, an exchange between Western and Kogi knowledge, but also between the social and natural sciences. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the... How did, do you know how Alan found you? Like He could have picked a lot of people. Certainly. I imagine that it must be something of your techniques or your interest. Well, I, I just I'm just uh, humbled by the fact that he called upon me, and uh, of course there are many great scientists who who I could name. Um, and I, I don't know. You would have to ask Alan why he thought <laughs> I'm the right person. The yeah when. I'm thinking of when you're describing them retreating and talking about the fragmentation, you know, you've been there. I've only seen the movies and a few documentaries that are online. And uh, I'm thinking of Alan's movies. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are all these scenes where they'll show the Kogi and then they'll turn and it's like this coal plant. Yeah. And, or they'll turn and like this, this clear, unsustainable, I mean, I'm sure that the arguments to to put the plant or um, there's all these places where they're trying to go from one place to another and they can't because there's some thing has been built there. Yeah. And it, when you're in the mood of, I'm sure that when you're in the mode of like, oh, we need to expand and grow the markets, it makes sense to build these plants and things. But when you're in the mood of the movie, which seems to me more sustainable, they look like pockmarks on the earth. Mm. And... The Kogi have just, it looks like they, yeah, as you said, they've retreated. 
and so much of what I see of environmentalism today is we're going to tell them how to be like us. And I feel like us, we, the reason I'm talking to you is because from what I heard from Alan, we are looking to seek to learn from them, and which seems the direction to go in. This seem, I mean, we seem to be lacking humility. How, how's, the, how's it framed for you? Like, before you even started, were you thinking, what can I learn from them? What can, and how does it, do you view it the same as I do? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you have to also note that it's um, the process of learning is so, also complicated by the fact that we speak different languages and most Kogi don't speak Spanish, which is the main language in Colombia now. So it's very important that this process um, has the involvement of mediators who work across cultures by knowing both languages. And there are some Kogi that speak Spanish, but most of the mamas who are the, you could say, the religious leaders or priests, although the word is not a good translation, um, they don't speak Spanish. So um, it's very important to be there physically because they also don't write what they what they teach. And and so it's a long-term process, and we're very, very excited to, to have this opportunity to go there as a family. Also with our son, we were there in July for the first visit. This first visit actually was not that we would just start working. Actually, we had to be vetted or blessed by the Kogi Mamas because they, they wanted to make sure, just like when you get into a business transaction, that you can work together with whoever's going to be your partner. So this already shows that the Kogi are really well organized just by how, how they develop projects and how they've been um, thinking of how to develop this particular project. So, for example, when we arrived to their offices in Santa Marta, we were given a master lecture of the efforts they've been leading over the past decades to reclaim lands and not just verbally, but also through the use of mapping technologies that they have been learning since 2009. So they were able to plot polygons of lands they had been purchasing throughout the Sierra since 2009 and showing us their um, current state and what they hope to achieve in the future. So, I mean, we also are very excited as scientists to contribute to a project that may have such a tangible outcome, which is restoration of degraded lands, because we often speak about conservation or about biodiversity, but often we don't have the opportunity to actually do something that has a direct impact on the land. And so we know that the Kogi will have such an impact. They've already demonstrated that they've been able to restore land. And, and so when we went there for the first time, it was, it was all these things that we had in mind um, in our first interaction with them. They specifically requested to have Westerners come to see what they're doing. Like they, they, would, they could just restore it on their own. But 
without teaching others, but they want to share with others what they know how to do. And as I understand from the movies, it looked like people see what they do and they're like, we couldn't do that ourselves. Yeah, indeed. So it's not, they could clearly just continue restoring lands on their own. They do need support from the outside world nowadays because, as I mentioned before, lots of their ancestral lands are now occupied by settlers. And in many cases, these settlers are willing to sell the land and they are on very good terms with the Kogi. So when we were there recently in July, we met with some of them and, and they had very good relations with the Kogi. And they are, some of them, also really interested in conservation. But the Kogi needs support to purchase these lands, which are no longer part of their, their territory. And, and their territory is quite large. It, it envelops through a, a line that they call the Black Line. It's, it's supposed to be a, a mark that delimits the, the lands they occupy in the Sierra Nevada Santa Marta. And it has legal recognition since the 90s by the Colombian government. But the problem is that lots of the sites around this line or within what used to be their ancestral lands have been very degraded. So the Kogi are trying to do a sort of acupuncture of the landscape by healing each of these nodes and, and trying to reconnect many sites that have been disconnected. And when you describe these nodes, oh, sorry. No, so just and as for your um, other point, of course, they could do this alone, but the Kogi want to also shift perceptions. They recognize that the lands that they live in are being deteriorated very fast with, like you mentioned, coal mining projects or cattle ranching or large-scale agriculture. And, and they recognize that it's important to show others how they restore the land, but also how they relate to it. Um, and I think this is a very wise um, way of approaching the problem because nowadays it's very difficult to, to make change if you just work in isolation from a very local place because even that local place that might be very intact, at some point it will be having the influence of outside uh, actors. And so the Kogi realized that they have to also address the causes of degradation. And to do so, I think, is why they, they contacted Alan and why they want to work with scientists. I didn't think about it this way until your description now, but I, is it fair to say that we could look at it as like, how are they going to fix this one plot of land? But now I'm thinking maybe it's more like the land and the nature around us is the physical, the difference. Here's how I, I think of a lot of our polluted world today is the physical manifestation of our values and beliefs and our culture, hmm. because that's what guides our behavior. And now I'm thinking that what the Kogi are going to do is show it, their land is they're going to take a degraded piece of land that's been i guess is the, is the degradation because of outsiders or because of them or it's because of outsiders how's it gotten degraded 
Yeah, it's because of outsiders that used to use the land for cattle ranching. So I'm thinking that it's not that they're going to specifically like fix this land. They're going to bring their culture back to it and it's going to exhibit what happens with when you live that uh, a sustainable, I don't know if the right word is a sustainable culture. Yes. They're not just going to say like, here's some techniques to grow plants. Exactly. It's going to be like, here's how to live. Yeah, yeah. That's fully on point because so what differentiates this approach from a lot of outsider approaches to restoration which often focus on tree planting, is that the kogi will nurture the nature within those lands. So they won't just, as most projects have done, which many have failed, just plant trees. And then that's it. You know, that's, you have planted so many million trees, you've accomplished this goal. The problem is that most tree planting projects have failed because what needs to be done is not tree planting, but tree growing. You actually need to follow up uh, these seedlings and see them grow. Just like when you're raising a, a, a child, you cannot expect them to mature from one year to another. You have to accompany them to this path. So that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, is this cultural aspect. The Kogi don't just restore a piece of land and feel apart from it. They actually settle in that land. Families move there to take care of it, to um, restore it. And this does not mean that they don't farm or that they don't fish or that um, they, they might not cut some trees, but they have a mentality that, for example, we will allocate so much percentage of the land to the new families that will arrive, but all the rest, we will conserve it. And I think this is... Um, this is super important because if you don't have this bottom-up, um, locally-led approach, then it's very likely that these restoration or conservation projects will fail. It sounds like what you're getting into then is not just observing a practice, but you're going to be immersed in a cultural, in a culture. Yes. I guess that's why the husband-wife kid makes sense. It's probably better than just you going in one person or a team. Yes. Well, and actually for me, it's been a bit of a evolution because I initially did my field work mostly alone. And then, you know, my wife would go and do her field work. I would go do mine. But as, as now we have a child and we, we don't really want to make such strong separation between our, our times. And we also want our son to experience this process of restoration and, and living with other cultures. We always thought that this could be a, a really nice opportunity to work on a project as a family. And, and of course, as you say, have a, a very unique immersion into a culture that, that we know so little about. And, and I think when we were now in July, it, I was already Alan had told us that he thought this was a fantastic idea. In fact, he went to the Sierra also with his family when he did his first documentary. And we realized after visiting the Sierra that it's actually, it makes all the sense in the world that we do this because for the Kogi family life is part of their day-to-day -day activities. And 
for us to go there as a family without thinking about it too much, it also showed that we trust them because you don't bring your children to a place where you think they won't be safe. Yeah, I'm thinking about the whole year. So it's going to be, I mean, your child is, is your child young enough that he or she is going to, I think you said son? Yes. So he's going to start picking up Kogi? I mean, without thinking about it? Well, yes, he already learned a bit how to say um, to say a few words. He made a few friends. He was playing around there in the community. But he's he's a bit young. He's less than three. But um, So he'll pick it up naturally? Yeah, yeah. Like without taking classes? Yeah, yeah. He, at that age, children pick up languages so fast, definitely. And I ask that because Alan made a point of describing the differences in the languages, that how conceptually different it is. And when you're talking about the acupuncture description, it feels like they're not just... Uh, I mean, he talked about how the map of the region that they found uh, from some long time ago wasn't... It didn't show the sites or the destinations as a, as a map that I, I would be used to seeing. It showed like the flows. Mm. And I'm going to guess that the language reflects the different view of the the universe, I guess, how we interact with it. Yes, definitely. And well, on a side note, some of my research has been focusing on precisely this, to what degree the loss of different indigenous languages will lead to the loss of unique knowledge about plants. And we actually found that uh, most knowledge about in this case, medicinal plants, is uh, restricted to single languages. This is based on, on work done in the Amazon, in North America, and in New Guinea. And so this is just a minor component of culture. But if you examine other domains, such as, for example, knowledge on ecological processes, on, on the weather, and so forth, on, on myths, then, of course, it can only just grow in in its uniqueness. And so, yeah, definitely, this is why it's so important to, to work with Kogi, who um, act as mediators between both worlds, but also with anthropologists who know Kogi and who can also help in that translation. Because we don't want to just assume that some of their terms map um, on a one-to-one -one basis to ours. And so this will make the effort much more interesting and difficult as well. Yeah, I'm trying to think of how you're going to write this up in papers to get it published. Like, what journal does it go into? Or, I mean, I'm sure you're going to do it no matter what, but it's, uh, to say cross-disciplinary, I don't think captures, it's all disciplinary, Yeah, it feels like. And maybe journals is not the best... Um, format to to go into the details of this so maybe film is more a natural thing that also reflects the kogi's way of of transmitting their knowledge i don't know it's, it's things that we need to reflect so for example other partners are working on on, on this aspect of translating the lessons from the project into educational materials they are experts in education so this is also like a big part of the project, actually. I'm curious, to what extent... All right, so the Kogi have been living in a way that 
is sustainable, it seems. And there are many other cultures that have been doing that and, uh, and innumerable ones that we've wiped out, we being our culture. Mm-hmm. To what extent do you think, I mean, the Kogi are going to be unique in many ways. I would suppose that something like this could be done with almost any, I, actually, I'm, I'm overextending there, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of places that could share this. Like, to what extent are you thinking this is unique to the Kogi? To what extent are you thinking maybe this will be the start of doing this with lots of different places? Is there things that, is there going to be some universal things that we haven't, that we've squashed or, or lost that might be recovered? How unique are the Kogi here? How universal are they? Well, I, I think the Kogi are unique in many ways, but what we aim to accomplish with this process is to make it uh, applicable and hopefully inspirational to other contexts and other cultures, because I think there's great potential to do that. And, and that's what why we have to make an effort to to try to come up with with ways to to document well the process to to see how aspects that are maybe restricted to Kogi culture might uh, be difficult to map onto other contexts. But our hope is actually that it can it can spark like a a way to to do restoration that that is markedly different from what has been done in the past and this does not have to only apply to to a single group like the kogi uh, for example the other there are four other indigenous groups in the sierra who have similar cultures to the kogi and overall share like a a similar vision but um, also other groups such as in amazonia share similar views as well so for example many many cultures still rely deeply on their indigenous ecological calendars and this is central to projects that focus on on restoration because knowing when to plant a tree or um, which type of tree to plant um, all of this has to do with with the knowledge about the seasons of each culture and so while these perceptions might differ from place to place, I think we can at some point make some generalizations of like not rules, but recommendations to to develop such projects in other areas. It reminds me, I read somewhere a long time ago that when a culture goes, when you look at the awareness of nature in a hunter-gatherer culture, and then you look at the awareness of nature in a pastoral or agricultural culture, the drop in awareness of nature is like huge. And then when you go to, I don't know, a city like New York, it's going to be, it's like precipitous. Hmm. And so, yeah, you know, people ask me a lot. I have a PhD in physics and they often ask me, are you using that today? And, you know, I'm not building a satellite like I did when I was in graduate school. But I think my, what I'm doing now on my sustainability work, I consider more close to nature, even though I'm also not publishing in journals or rather in leadership journals as opposed to science journals. And yeah, I, I think I certainly grew up with a view of science involves equations and lab coats and equipment. And now I think of, when I think of science as the study of nature and understanding nature, some of that is pretty far removed from nature. And I think of what you're doing now is, I think what the Kogis do is probably more scientific in our original sense of it, of, of 
I don't know if it's the original sense of it, but more of interacting with nature and, and meaningfully interacting and learning from nature than a lot of what we would now call science here. Does that ring true? Yeah, that, that definitely rings true. Although um, I think there's value to to both ways of, of seeing the world. I mean, on the one hand, um, I'll call it just Western science for just to make the major distinction with indigenous science. Although, you know, it's Western, it's not just restricted to the West. But um, Western science is based on um, gathering data just as indigenous sciences but in the case of western science often um the the number of of data points that are needed to, uh, to come up to a, a conclusion is often very large whereas in indigenous knowledge systems they seem to have um, a, a much better understanding of the system with far less information and i don't mean to say that they have little information because they are the indigenous shamans and elders I work with have an amazing um, repertoire of, of names in their heads. I mean, it's astonishing. They can name hundreds of rivers in, in several minutes. Um, but what I'm going to is that they can, they can more or less assess the health of a, of a, of a given species based on, on the observations that they make while while doing several walks in the landscape. Whereas, for example, ecologists will need several hundred hours of transects uh, and visualizations with binoculars or with camera traps. Uh, and so th there's there um, a, a major difference, I would say, in, in the time invested. And now we saw with the pandemic that all these um, efforts by by foreign scientists that could no longer visit, for example, tropical countries failed because they, they, they could not travel to those places. But um, which also shows that we, we really need to rely on, on local investigators from these regions. And, and indigenous peoples have often a much better understanding of biodiversity in their lands than the best trained um, zoologist or botanist. In fact, recently, Western scientists have been collaborating a lot, and there's some great papers showing that, thanks to indigenous knowledge, um, what were considered before as one species of a of a crop, wild crop relative, can be uh, actually described as two different species based on genetic data. But that was only possible because the local people already could tell apart these species, whereas Western botanists um, thought they were the same due to morphology. Um, this is a, a small example, but I think the, it applies to, to many other aspects of, of how being in a place during a long period of time and also receiving the, the knowledge from your elders and in a way that you are stimulating your memory because most of the interactions are oral, it makes a huge difference. And I think this will only grow because now we see we rely so much on, on computers and on, on consulting um, the internet when we have doubts. So I think this is actually 
having a toll on our ability to to retain information. Oh man, you're gonna have a huge culture shock when you return. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I have I'm used to to living with indigenous communities, so I think it won't be as big as when when I first returned from the field. And then I'm also going with my family, so it actually makes a huge difference because then you're you're no longer thinking about how your family is doing, whether they are healthy or not, but you have actually have the privilege of of being in the moment there. Actually, going back to Life Among Them, the movies always show them very serious. And Alan said, oh, they never allow themselves to appear surprised. And when I asked him, is there fun? Are they playful? He said, oh, of course. They're... And But we don't see that. No. And you spent a little time with them. We were so scared, actually, <laughs> when we when we were going to go there because the Alan's latest documentary um, features some very serious Kogi. But... Mm -hmm. We felt completely different when we arrived there. Actually, I would describe the Kogi, others have said something similar as the Buddhist of the Andes. We we felt like we didn't need to really utter any words to just feel connected with them. Um, and they always had like a a playful attitude. So it was it was very different to to what was portrayed by some of, of the Kogi in the documentary. And I think in that documentary, they, they were, of course, mm, very serious because their contribution there was to alert the world of all, all the things that are horrible and are happening in their lands. So, of course, they could not be playful. But once you, you are there in the territory, and I think maybe because we are also with this common goal in the Munek and Masa project, then, then the, the atmosphere is very different. Can you describe it more? And do you have any stories of, of interactions? I, it sounds like you're only there for a couple of days. Yeah, we were there for a couple of days. And and for example, we we often had to had to go on Jeep rides to to go and see the lands that they wanted to to purchase. And we had to give our opinion on, on what we thought of of its quality and, and so forth. And on these Jeep rides, we were all very uh, tight sitting in the back of the jeep it was about seven or eight of us and the most of the of the ride it was just pure laughter and and of sharing um jokes about things that had been going on and about the cultural differences between between us and and them um and so yeah and, and then it was also really nice how beyond this um this atmosphere of, of joking it was it was also nice to see how they approached us as a family um just to make sure that we were all doing fine that our son um was feeling okay that you know his sleeping arrangements were were suitable and um, and that was also really touching it was the first time he slept in a in a hammock with my wife uh, actually it all went quite well you're going to wear the Kogi clothes or are you going to stick in jeans and t-shirts? No, I, I'll continue dressing as I dress. I think, um, yeah, I'm not, I respect, of course, the the way 
different people might want to address. I know lots of anthropologists and ethnobiologists have gone native, but um, I realized it's it would be out of context for me to to try to behave like a Kogi because I'm not educated as one. Actually, I, I don't know if you know, but... Not yet. <laughs> well, the, the Kogi, um, this is maybe the most extreme case, but the Kogi are trained over periods of nine years in complete darkness. The mamas. So I'm not ready at the moment to, to undergo that. Of course, I'm too old for that as well. They, on, they do this when they're very young and they are uh, separated from their parents and trained by a mama. And, and then once, once they've undergone this teaching, they are ready to, to come out in the light. And, uh, and for some very extreme cases, this period is of two nine-year periods. But for the mamas living in the most remote areas, it could be of up to four uh, nine-year periods. I could ask more about that, and I want to, but I'm going to save that for a later conversation to hear more about those. Because the reason I was asking about wearing the clothes and the playfulness is that if the land's condition is in some ways a manifestation of their culture and how they live, then the more you adopt their culture, I mean, how, playfulness, I'm guessing that like playfulness is part of it. If you're not, if you're not having fun interacting with nature, then you might end up just planting trees, which you've said has failed. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you, I mean, the full rich range of, I'm guessing that the full rich range of interactions is partly what leads to the diversity of, uh, the biodiversity that results in the transformations of the land that we see. Yes. And it's like you said before that the landscape that surrounds us is a manifestation of our attitudes to life, our goals, our ambitions. And I don't, I cannot imagine like a healthy landscape with people just living seriously their whole life. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just wouldn't work. And um, actually, it, 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 that's that's impossible because just being surrounded by children in a community is already um, something that brings so much joy. And of course, the Kogi are, are quite serious in comparison to other indigenous groups, like you mentioned. Uh, and this is because they are constantly in a process of reflection and meditation while they are chewing coca leaves. And I see this almost like as a yeah, as as a a way of living in constant meditation. And and I think this is quite unique in comparison to to other groups in I've worked with. I'm thinking of what would it be like? Could you imagine a place that was uh the emotions weren't playful. What if they were angry and outraged all the time? Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. That's where I live. <laughs> and it's getting more so. Yeah, maybe maybe we, we wouldn't actually even look at our landscape that's around us because we would always be inside our head angry and, and not have the time to to observe, you know, the trees that are blooming or, you know, the birds around us that are singing. So, uh, and of course, that would come with little appreciation about the relationships between these different organisms. Um, yeah. Yeah, we had plenty of that. And then we brought in Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and increased it. And now we're not only isolated from nature, but from each other. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's also something really nice when you are able to break from that kind of day-to-day -day activity of also working in computers, which we often do as scientists. But when you have the, actually the privilege to not open a computer for a week or two weeks when you're in the field, and it's just amazing the the shift in in how you are able to to just feel, you know, because I mean. Nowadays we are often checking email, or there there's more um, pressure to to be reactive. But in those situations when you're in the field, it's it's like you're in a different uh, yeah um, way of living, and it's very soothing actually. How did turning off a computer become a privilege? <laughs> how we live for 300,000 years is now I know right <laughs> a rarefied thing yeah and, and I mean how could you do podcasts nowadays without without such such technology in a way it's good of course because we we are able to to share so much information and actually one of the great things of technology is that we can communicate with, with our indigenous colleagues who are living in remote areas and and you know be be in touch which would not have been possible in the past not even through post um so there's definitely lots of lots of positive angles to technology but the problem is when we when we cannot manage it sustainably and yeah that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> well, I think it's not just how managing it sustainably, if you mean by not polluting too much or not extracting too much, but also how we can manage it without just falling into creating craving that when the satisfaction of the craving creates more craving, which seems to be social media and seems to be how we are industrial. I don't even call it food. And uh, video games and like they have coca leaves that they chew all the time mm. and we can't stop ourselves. We've got to refine it and refine it and refine it. So we got cocaine and meth and heroin and crack and these keep growing. Yeah. And yet they're sitting there chewing coca, which in principle here you say, don't even touch anything because it's going to get, you know, it's just designed to, we have a system designed to get you deeper and deeper into it. And but the same with sugar and refined sugar and salt and fat and but they're actually like chewing coca leaves like what is an epidemic here is meditative there mm. well um yeah and what is used from the source plant which is really benign and is very beneficial in terms of um nutrition uh, and and also it provides um focus and when when you're out walking hours in the forest um, it also works to stave off hunger although it's not used for that reason but it can work that way but now in, in it's completely different to the coca leaf to what is known as cocaine which is the alkaloid obtained from the leaf but because of this processing now it's it's incredible that the plant is illegal in many parts of the world um, when I think no plant should be illegal. Um, so that's that's actually something that hopefully will change 
now, for example, many many countries are promoting like the commerce of the coca leaf. Of course, Bolivia, Peru, but also now Colombia. You see it in in many markets in Bogota, and and yeah, and I, I hope that this this can can become a global phenomenon that the coca leaf is not uh, any more banned across borders. Yeah, to me, I haven't, I don't know what it's like, but I would imagine, you know, fruit is, as far as I can tell, pretty healthy. But when you just, just take out the sugar, it becomes not, not particularly healthy to just have straight sugar. Likewise with, uh, I don't know, avocados or olives, pretty healthy. And we just take out just the refined oil, it becomes pretty unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great analogy. And it feels like it would fit that pattern. Yeah, definitely. You know, if, from our, a lot of people, when I talk to them about living more sustainably, they have this dichotomy that I consider false dichotomy. They think, well, if you're not living like this, then you're living in the Stone Age or medieval times or skirting with risking some Mad Max dystopia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I read this book, um, The Dawn of Everything. I don't know if you've read it, but it, I mean, they talk about the diversity of cultures historically. And not just, I, I think today, if you, if you talk about different cultures, a lot of people will think, Oh, a different culture like France or Japan or Senegal. But the Kogi is like on a whole other level. And they're one of many, many of the ones still remaining. Yes. Which are them a small fraction of what was there before. And am I right that there's, you've, I haven't lived among any, I haven't studied any. Is there a huge diversity of types of living, of government styles and, and, and agricultural styles and culture, arts and music and, and dance. And it's, it's a huge wealth of things, right? Yes. I mean, just think of the number of languages that exist right now in the world. It's about 7,000, 7,000 languages. And um, just in Colombia, where the Kogi live, there are 87 languages. Um, most people I speak to in, in the city are not aware of that. Um, and as we discussed briefly before each language comes with its own way of looking at the world so this translates to the music translates to the relationship with the land translates to the art and the the sad thing is that um now well because of different source of pressures such as you know uh, roads or the imposition of the dominant language system, about thirty percent of these seven thousand languages is predicted to go extinct by the end of the century. So, and then additionally, there are fewer and fewer linguists who are studying what what these languages are all about. So. Um, we talk a lot about the loss of biological diversity, but very few people discuss this this problem of the loss of cultural diversity. And I think this also relates to what we were discussing about in terms of social media and you know everyone relating to to computers. So that's a that's something that that worries me a lot because. And I also see it that in many development projects, 
one of the main arguments is to to try to make them more like us. So, you know, okay, how can we incorporate um, them into the cash economy and blah, blah, blah. But actually it's, it's much more complicated than that. Um, and it's just about, well, and it's not actually, it's just about letting each culture be how it wants to be. And it, this might sound simple, but in many regions, um, it's it's so difficult, for example, just to be able to, yeah, to live in your ancestral lands because they are no longer, you know, uh, available. They have been occupied by settlers or to be uh, supported when there's a pandemic and that, you know, people in, in your culture who are so few, uh, and they are the last representatives of a of a endemic language. They are succumbing to the effects of the pandemic, but there is no oxygen tanks in remote areas and no way of supporting um, through, say, uh, airplanes to to bring healthcare to those regions. So, yeah, it's it's um it's very tricky. And it's not at all being in the Stone Age. It's just diff- different ways of of relating. And uh, there's no like, um, I, I don't think there's any truth in that there's an evolution in, 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 in culture that leads to us, well, us, I mean, here sitting in front of computers being the most developed uh, bit of culture. Actually, it's just one way of looking at life and as we see, it might not be the wisest, given how what surrounds us is, is being degraded by so fast. And yet we have these stories that we tell ourselves, I think because of this cognitive, dis- this internal conflict that we tell ourselves, well, we're destroying their land, we and their cultures, we must be best. And to prove that, we have to show how, we have to tell ourselves that theirs are worse. That's why it's okay to make them like us. But we bring them, I think we bring them aid, but the aid is what we want to give them, not what they want. Like, I think if they, probably what they want more than anything else, I would guess, is their land back. Yeah. But that's the last thing that we'll give them. We'll bring them stuff that is going to just addict them. Yes. And that's why I think- Playing on with this term. This project is so interesting because they are actually, they were- the first to to start the dialogue, they contacted the Tyrona Heritage Trust and saying, okay, this is what we want. Can you help us? Um, it, I think that's already a great shift from the dominant approach that you were saying about aid giving. Yeah, I think of the aid and I think of like all the techno optimists in Silicon Valley and like Bill Gates wants to help See, he wants to help them to be like him, but they, I don't think people want to be like him. And if that's the case, if he's so wealthy, why does he want stuff from them, but they don't want stuff from him? Yeah. It, it kind of makes you wonder what are values. You know, I always wonder with, with a, a friend, I was in the, in the Amazon in Colombia and I was, I was doing interviews with, in, in a community going from household to household. And I was interviewing one elder and he was, well, he was not so old, but he he had about five, six um, children. 
and and he was telling me, you know what, here we we live good, we we don't have a boss, and we go fishing, and if we fish well today, um, then we might not need to go fishing again for two or three days, and then I can spend all of that time as I wish. I can go chat with my friends, I can play with my kids, I can go make love with my wife, whatever. Um, and and I felt so jealous, actually, because <laughs> nowadays we have such fixed routines um, where we have to, of course, I'm very privileged in a way because I I work in something that I love doing, which has to do with um, research and biodiversity and different cultures. So in my case, but still, you're always constrained by, by some, um, you know, some routines. Uh, and and I think he, he said it very nicely. There's so, that that's just a way of living that um, that is actually mm, very difficult to achieve nowadays with this way that you were discussing. Of for example, Bill Gates trying to make everyone become a certain way. The privilege that you described for yourself, he's got completely throughout his whole life. Mm. I'm guessing that the fishing he likes too. I mean, people here seem to like fishing. Yeah. <laughs> so he's got full privilege. We, we've twisted things around so that to live how everyone used to live, uh, maybe that's overgeneralizing, but to live how this guy lives all the time, we consider privilege. And not privilege would be having to do something you don't like. Our normal is not is doing stuff we don't like. Definitely. And I, I think it also has to do with human population density because they can afford to do that because they the human the number of people per square kilometer is very small but as human population density increases then there has to be some system of food production of uh, of political organization and and this is what is called social complexity in in standard terms but this also has all, all these setbacks that that we are experiencing nowadays in big cities. I think the the quality of life is determined by actually very few things. It's the ability to walk nowadays, to work, to not have to commute long hours, to you know be able to take your kids to 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 school and 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 have plenty of afternoon time to do nothing. Um, I think that's maybe an intermediate way of 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 living between both worlds. Now you're filling me with envy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could go on. Uh, but when will you have your first reports back? When will you, when can we have you back to hear how things have gone there? Um, well, um, we will return to work with the Kogi in 2023. We expect to hear from some funding agencies soon. And if if the funding is awarded, then we will be visiting the Koki around two or three times every year for the next three years. Mm. And yeah, I think each experience will be different. And yeah, um, I, I really hope that that we we can develop the project and hopefully, yeah, restore restore the land and also show others how the Kogi are, are doing the process. 
Um, the project is planned for three years, but um, in realistic terms, it should it will probably extend longer, and and we hope that we can achieve funding for that because most restoration projects that are based on a three-year cycle are are not enough because tree species require longer periods for growth. So, but anyways, I, I would love to be back here and chat with you about the, the progress of the project. And yeah, and why not? Maybe you can at some point also considering going to the Sierra yourself and, and meet the Kogi. <laughs> I would love to. So I think Tyrona Heritage Trust, if people want to help, if I put a link to there, then people can donate. I actually donate. There's not... I have a lot of people on this podcast and I donated to Tyrona. Oh, wow. Thanks so much. And it's not going to put you over the top, but it was something. And is that the place to go if people want to support you? Yes. If people want to support the NGO, um, they should go to the Tyrona Heritage Trust website and and those funds will directly go to the project. Um, I, I'm not involved in in managing that. I'm just a, the, the scientist, but um, also... Alan Herrera would be the person to to contact if you want further information about that. And I'll put the link in the notes. And then, so I'll have to wait to hear from you after you have your first experience there to, to share, but please come back and tell us how things have gone after your first time. I will, I will do that. Thank you so much. Yeah, Rodrigo, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.